on Facebook. I put out there for people to kind of answer, uh, what is a psalm that you find yourself going back to again and again? And it was cool to see a couple responses on there. So we're actually going to take one of those responses, which was Psalm 61, and we're going to work through the text, just kind of like what we did last week, all right? Now, I'm going to hand these out. Like I said, it's just a printed version of Psalm 61 from the King James Version. This is for you. I'm going to hand out pens, too, if you need it. We're going to give you some time right here tonight to mark up the paper, to make notes, to make observations. Then we're going to work through the text together and then see how the Lord leads. The one thing different about tonight that we we did last week, we're not going to do tonight is, um, I had you guys kind of share your observations before we really got into the text. Tonight, we're going to do it a little bit different. I wanted to have you share last week so that maybe if somebody wasn't sure what types of things to note or what kind of things to mark up, that would give them an idea of, oh, I can mark that up or show that. Tonight, we're just going to let it kind of be you guys doing your own thing. And then at the end, if there's something I don't cover that you want to add to, then we'll kind of do that. And then also, I want to hear any psalms that you would like to study. Maybe there's a psalm that you find beneficial and encouraging. And at the end, I'll kind of open it up where you can maybe share those and then I'll make some notes up here and we can kind of maybe work through those two at some point in the next couple of weeks. All right. So we'll see how, how many Psalms we do. I don't know uh, how many we're going to go through. I don't have a plan, but we're going to hand these out so everybody can get one. So there you go. Yep. Okay. I didn't know if he was going to be up there or be back here. It's probably waiting for me to start recording. There you go. There you go. There you go. What's that? <laughs> I'm going to give three. Evan, do you want one? I'm sure Melody does. That's why I was going to make sure. Does anyone need a pen? Pens. Anyone need a pen? Any pens needed? I'm a pretty bad shot, so if I throw it from here, I'll probably miss you. So, yeah, it'll put an eye out. Evan, you need a pen? Very back row. Love it. That's right. I need it. I need to get my steps in today. Well, there you go. Do you need a pen, Keith? There you go. Yeah, I just saw, you know, you, weren't, you didn't have one ready, so I thought you needed one. All right. So... As we're gonna, uh, as we did last week, like I said already, so we will uh, give you some time. Uh, I want to encourage you just read through the text on your own. Um, you can note or highlight anything um, that stands out to you. One thing I encourage is make notations around things that repeat. Uh, names, obviously, things of that kind, something that stands out to you of interest. Um, yeah, so take some time. I'll give you a few minutes to go ahead and start working through the text. Just read it verse by verse. And as you're reading it, just, again, circle, underline, whatever jumps out to you. Maybe if you see something that you're kind of wondering what that means, put a little question mark next to it. Um, and we can go from there. So I'll give you a few minutes to do that. Hey, TJ, I meant to ask last week, could we, would you guys be bothered by a little bit of music in the background? Do you guys, how many of you guys would like to have some kind of music like softly playing in the background? Nothing too intense. A couple people. Anyone bothered by music playing when you're doing that? Sandra's the only one. You got outvoted. Sorry, honey. Yeah, TJ, if you could find something, just maybe something kind of soft in the background so it's not super quiet. I should have had Keith just keep playing on the piano a little something, a little background music. 
What's that? Well, yeah, I mean, he has a pen now, so he can make notes. So he's good. If I didn't give him a pen, he'd have to play the piano. So. Oh, I, re- I won't tell that story. Do you remember the men's? Or no, what was it? It wasn't a men's group. It was, yes, we're talking like probably 2008, nine. You sang in that. Yeah, that's good. It's good stuff. He plays piano now, so.
We'll give you guys just a couple more minutes, make any more notations, and then we'll start working through the text. through the text. Um, somebody asked me, is, are you like discouraging people looking things up? Um, not necessarily, because <laughs> they wanted to see what a word meant or whatever. Um, really, it's just about kind of making observations in the text. But if you were doing this on your own, uh, which I always encourage, if you can do something like this, um, I feel like maybe you journal would be better if you're using your phone, for example, and you can just journal out the observations you're making. Uh, in that time, yeah, obviously you would Maybe take a moment and look up a word or something. Uh, but what I always try to encourage is the initial time you look through the text, j just kind of look at the text. Um, some of you have study Bibles that you use. Those are great. I have a NASB study Bible that has really good commentary in it. 
Um, but sometimes if you jump right to the commentary, um, and those aren't bad. I use them. I use all kinds of study resources. But sometimes that initial response, let it kind of be just you and the Spirit of God. And then once you've kind of come to, okay, I think I have an idea of what this is at least saying to me, now take that next step. Look up terms you don't know. Look up other verses, things like that. So my notes are a little different. This is mine. So it's a little different because I did have a chance to kind of go back and fill some things in. Um, but I did have some question marks in there. I did have some things that I was like, I wonder what that's saying. Um, so I encourage you just to make the notes as they make sense for you. But let's break this down. So first we'll read the whole psalm and then we'll go back and break it apart. All right. So I'll just go ahead and read it for us. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So will I sing praise unto thy name forever that I may daily perform my vows. So let's break this apart. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. And so if you want to add any notes, feel free to do so. Even on the back, maybe if you want to add something. But when I was kind of reading through this psalm, what came to my mind was a psalm that conveys a time of need. When I read this psalm through from 1 to 8, um, I kind of see a psalm that's really about conveying a time of need. There, there's something that's in need, someone that's in need here. Uh, verses 1 and 2, we see pretty clearly this is the idea of a genuine prayer. A genuine prayer. The psalmist says his prayer can only be compared to a cry. And we see that connection in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. Cry and prayer are the same thing in the verse. The cry that he's referring to is his time of prayer. I love it. I think it's Spurgeon that said real prayer, genuine prayer can only be described as a cry. It's this very, just from the gut of guts, like just from deep inside, something's going on and you can't even put words to it. You just cry out to God. I know I've prayed prayers like that. I'm sure you have too at times. And isn't it comforting, and I love that he says this in the verse, that he's not praying to himself, right? He's not praying to his friends. He's not praying to his political leaders. He's not praying to his neighbors. He's praying to the one that can actually do something about what he's going through. So he cries out. Now, I'm not saying we don't cry out to our friends and cry out to our Christian brothers and sisters. Of course we do that. But I love the first place that he goes is where he says, hear my cry, Oh God, the one that can actually do something about it. I love that in a moment of trial, the psalmist is crying out not to others, but to God. He knows God will be there in the good and bad times. So I just want to ask with a raised hand, has anyone had a prayer like this where you just felt like you just cried out to God? That's all you could do is just cry out to him. Anybody been there? A few hands. How comforting is it to know that, yes, you're crying out and you're in trial and you're struggle. But there's a level of comfort to know that God hears you. Now, we looked at this last week. Remember? He hears us. 
He pays attention to us. He's mindful of us, Psalm 8 says. We see all of creation and we see all the stars and the beauty and we think, man, this is amazing. And then Psalm 8 told us that really when God compares that to you and I, that's not on his mind. The stars and the sun, not on his mind the way we're on his mind. And not only are we on his mind, but what did Psalm 8 also tell us? Not only does he think of you, but what else does he do? He cares for you. And so here we see the psalmist, because he knows God is mindful of him, because he knows God cares for him, he cries out to him. And again, directed to the one that can do something about it. Now, according to the psalm, why is he crying out in verse 2? What's the, what's the reason for his prayer, or his crying out? What does it tell us? What's Daniel? His heart is overwhelmed. And so for me, I kind of circled heart and overwhelmed. And I thought, okay, what are those two things going to help me to understand about when my heart is overwhelmed? What's it saying here? Well, the heart, this gives us the idea of not the literal heart, but what does that mean in scripture when it talks about the heart of someone or the heart of God? What are we talking about? It's not a literal, you know, heart. What's it meaning? Your emotional center. Yeah. Yeah. The gut, your seat of your emotions, right? Some of you guys remember that Mark Lowry song? We always say, like, you know, we talk about our, our hearts being the seat of our emotions, but in Song of Solomon or other places, it talks about, like, the bowels of mercy. Bowels, right? Anyway, so anyway sorry, it's a whole different sermon. But I always think about that, the irony of that. We don't really say that, oh, I just, I love you with all my bowels. Like, it doesn't just convey the same meaning. But when he says heart, he's talking about his emotional seat. So stop for a second. Okay, we have to put ourselves in the mind of the psalmist and say, he's crying out, so he's feeling this pressure, this weight. He's praying to God. He wants God to do something about this. I think we can relate with this because it's not his, his mind crying out. It's his what crying out? His heart, his emotions are crying out. He's not overwhelmed in his thinking. He's overwhelmed in his emotions, so whatever's going on is hitting him at an emotional level. Now, this is where I got to go back and do a little more study on this. Uh, again, the heart gives us the idea of the seat of our emotions and the word overwhelmed. So you can jot this down somewhere if you'd like. The word overwhelmed literally means to envelop, to envelop, to cover, to faint away to envelop, to cover, or to faint away. So think about that. To envelop him. His heart is enveloped by something that's just overwhelming him. It's just consuming him. And it's, it's really all over him. I love that one of the definitions is to cover. Basically, anywhere he looks in this moment, it's everywhere. You ever been feeling like that in your emotions? You just seem like no matter where you look, it's just this trial is everywhere. It covers everything. There's nowhere you can go that it's not. That's how we feel about some of these trials we go through in life. And then to faint away. It's causing him, the psalmist, to, I'm done. I got to back away. I'm fainting away. I'm, I'm weak, right? I'm overwhelmed. So whatever it is, we don't know yet based on the text. We haven't got there yet. We will. But whatever it is that's weighing on his heart is covering him. It's consumed him. It's all around him. And it's in this moment when he feels overwhelmed, he cries out to, again, 
not himself, not his neighbor, his God. He cries out to God. Why does he cry out to God when he feels consumed by this trial? Because God is outside of the situation, right? He feels overwhelmed, but he knows his God is outside of this. His God is objective to this. He's out there. He's not, God's not consumed with this. God's not overwhelmed with this. So I have to go to the one that can draw me and pull me out of this. And he can do that because he's outside of this situation. So what is he praying for? What is he praying for? We see this in verse 2. So the reason for the cry or the prayer, and again, we see the word cry, right, in verse 2. Will I cry unto thee? So again, that prayer talks about his heart being overwhelmed. And what is he praying for? What's his prayer request, if you will, in verse 2? Okay, bring me to the rock. And then what's the other phrase there about the rock? It's higher than I. So again, do you see this idea that he's in this moment, but the rock is, is higher. I can't, I'm down here in the muck and the mire of my emotions. I need to be pulled out of this. And the only one that can pull me out of it is one who's not in it with me, and that's God. So when you read this here, that he asked to be led to the rock, which is higher than himself. The rock is above our emotions and our minds are instantly drawn, for me anyway, to 1 John 3.20. So you can jot that down maybe somewhere over on the side there. 1 John 3.20. This is what John tells us in his epistle. For if our Lord, con- or if our heart, rather, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. So what's that saying? When our emotions come against us and we feel overwhelmed, and by the way, it's not always because of a trial. Sometimes it's, or it could be a trial that we caused or a trial someone else is bringing to our life, right? Sometimes we just don't feel like whatever we're supposed to feel like because we're human and we're flawed. I was just listening to a message by Alistair Begg, and he was talking about that Jesus calls us to love our enemies and how controversial that was even when Jesus preached it and taught it 2,000 years ago. It's still controversial today to truly love our enemies. And he started off by saying, do you ever read something in the Bible and you don't feel Christian when you compare your life to what the Bible says your life's supposed to look like as a Christian, right? We've all been there. And so for Alistair Begg to say that, who I think he's amazing, right? One of the most humble, amazing preachers I've heard with a cool accent, doesn't hurt, okay? For him to even admit and say, yeah, there's times I read scripture and I go, I don't feel like a Christian, So what happens when our emotions try to tell us and whisper to us, yeah, you're not really saved. Yeah, you didn't really mean it. Yeah, if if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have felt that or done this or said that. We stop our emotions and we answer it with truth, right? If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, when I was looking into this a little bit deeper, um, We hear rock, and what do we think of? The rock of our salvation, right? We think of Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. I did not, in my studies, find a direct connection, meaning that when the psalmist says rock here, that he's referring to the Messiah. I I couldn't find that. But I'm not saying he wasn't meaning that. He could have meant that, okay? There could be a connection there. But I think the point here we need to understand is the word rock is literally translated— you ready for this? This is pretty deep stuff. You've got to go real deep into the Hebrew to get this, okay? The word rock is literally translated a rock or cliff. That's what it means, okay? I know it's super exciting. Okay, so a rock 
or cliff. However, the Hebrew use of this word can also convey strength. That makes sense, right? A rock is strong, right? A foundation that's made of rock is strong and secure. So we know Christ is the rock of our salvation. But here I believe David, who we believe was writing this psalm, was meaning he wanted to stand on something solid, strong. Something solid and strong. What was He was standing on his emotions. What was that getting him? Consumed, right? Overwhelmed. But if I get taken to the rock and I'm standing on the strength and the solidarity of my God, I'm standing on him, with him, for him, then I'm secure. I'm strengthened. Now I'm not overwhelmed. Now I'm not consumed. So that's the idea here. He wanted something strong and solid. Another way we can say this is David wanted the sure footing of God's strength. Outside of his emotions, outside of his understanding, I need the sure footing of God's strength. So, moving on to verse 3. We remember God's goodness. So we see that genuine cry in prayer, but I think moving into verse 3, we see and remember God's goodness. And I love this not as a rigid form of example of prayer, but I think we see a great example of what our prayer life can look like. We start with a cry. We start with overwhelmed. We start with an emotional response. But as we move through the psalm, we're going to see the transition from that's the basis for our prayer to verse 8. I don't want to give a spoiler away, but we already read it. The praise. Right? We start with a cry, a prayer of just need. But we end when we go about it the way we should with a time of praise and rejoicing. And I'm going to note here before we even get there, the situation didn't get better in eight verses. Right? In eight verses, God didn't just swoop in and take everything bad away and put everything good in its place. The situation doesn't have to change for us to praise him. And in fact, the situation most likely, if we're being honest, stays pretty much the same, at least in the immediate future. So what changed for David or the psalmist was not the situation he was in, but what? His perception of the situation, his response to the situation. So remembering God's goodness. Let's look at verse 3. So if thou hast been, has been, this is him remembering that God has been there for him in the past. He starts off by saying, you have been there for me. A little note that I put down here, we will always praise when we pause to remember. We will always praise when we pause to remember what God has already done. But we don't like to think that way. We want, God, that was great. You did that a couple weeks ago. Can you do this now? I know you saved me way back when. That was great. But can you do this now? Right? It's all about what have you done for me lately. But the psalmist says, when we stop to remember God's goodness, it will lead us to praise. So how has God been there for the psalmist or for David? What does verse 3 tell us? How has he been there? How has God been there for David? What do we read in verse 3? Okay, it was a shelter. What else? Strong tower. Okay. And those are two really key phrases there, right? A shelter and a strong tower. So when you think of those two things, what comes to mind? A shelter and a strong tower. Not just even with God, just in general. What do you think of? I'm sorry? Okay, protection. Yeah, absolutely. You need a shelter to be protected from the elements, right? 
Strong tower gives the idea of strength and security. Anything else come to mind? A shelter and a strong tower. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I tend to think of the same thing. I literally think of a stone tower, like in medieval times. We're up there with him. Yes, below us is all the same craziness that was always there. But now, in a sense, it can't get to us. We've been picked up out of that situation, right? And that's really what's being communicated here in the psalm. It's a place of protection, a place of security. It's a secure place. So that rock he was referring to, now we have a little bit better understanding What is the rock? Well, the rock is the shelter. The rock is the strong tower. So that place of protection, that place of security, he says God is these things for him. So basically, wherever God is, there is security. So wherever God is, there's security. Wherever God's presence is, there's security. There's comfort. There's there's protection from the elements of the world around us. A couple weeks ago, we looked at James chapter three. I believe it's chapter three. Yes. And we talked about the winds that blow against us. In James three, it talks about that we're, he uses the example of our tongue as a helm of a uh, vessel, a ship. Okay. And so he says there that the small little helm controls a large vessel. And he says, the winds beat against the vessel, but the winds don't dictate where the vessel goes. The one, the captain of the ship is turning that helm. He decides where the ship goes. So we talked about in our world today, there are winds of all different kinds that beat against our vessels, our ships. They, They try to push us and pull us and move us across. But we can govern our words, our tongues in a way in submission to the spirit that we would actually be led in that way. So in a similar sense, the winds of this world are going to beat against you. You're a follower of Christ. It's not easy. We said it this morning. There will be cultural winds, winds of different beliefs. The world wants you to think this. Even in Christian circles, there's some crazy ideas out there about what your life should be like as a follower of Christ. So how do we avoid giving into that? How do we stand up against those winds that beat against us? We go to where God is. And where is God? He is in us, eternally dwelling in us as the Spirit of God is with us. Right? We abide in him and he abides in us and we spend time in his word and in prayer. So when we go to that prayer time, we go to that devotional time, we're in his presence. And guess what that means? We have security. We have protection. We have provision against the winds of this world. As a follower of Christ, he will provide you that security and that shelter. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to take you out of the storm. As Renee says, sometimes he may lift you above it. Sometimes for his glory, he may leave you right in it, but you're secure and you're, you're comfortable because and confident because he's with you in the storm. Like we sang this morning, he's with us in the fire. He didn't take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fire. He said, I'll get in the fire with you. And they all of a sudden now they have security because even in the midst of that fiery furnace, God is with them. And so the psalmist is saying, no matter where I go, if I'm with you and you with me, I have a shelter. I have a strong tower. David Platt says it well. He said, as a follower of Christ, your safety is no longer your concern. I don't have to fear for my safety. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to me today or tomorrow. No, no. If God cares for the sparrows, he cares for you. 
So I don't have to live in fear of my safety or my security or trying to protect myself. No, no, no. He will do that. Now, it doesn't mean we do foolish things and we don't use wisdom. But what I'm saying is so many Christians will refuse to step out by faith and do what God's calling to do because of security reasons or safety reasons or concerns like that. And I told you guys a story that a, a young girl was called to missions and she went and told her parents she wanted to go to tribal missions. I think it was Dan Stokes that told me this story a couple of years ago when he was here. And he was here also in February, but the time before that. And he was saying that when he was hearing this girl tell her parents this, they didn't want her to go to the tribal mission field because it was too dangerous. It was too dangerous. You don't know what you're going to get. And I'm pretty sure he said she was supposed to be going to school in Illinois, just outside Chicago. And he looked at the parents and he said, you're sending her to a more dangerous place than we can find any tribe that's going to be like that. Now he was being exaggerating and he was kind of being silly. But we think these things though. Well, that's dangerous. I've said it before, if, if my boys ever came to me and said, I want to be a missionary, and they want to go to the heart of Islamic territory, where there's a really good chance they will lose their life, that would be so difficult to ever say, yeah, go ahead and go. But I better get out of their way. Because if I discourage that because I'm worried about their security and what God's calling them to, I'm hindering them from doing the very will of God. See, we have to think this way. When you're a follower of Christ, your security is no longer your concern. Your safety is no longer your concern. I'm not saying be foolish. Again, we use wisdom. God gives us wisdom. But we also need to understand if God's calling us there, then he will be with us. And so here, Psalmist David most likely cries out and wants this place of security. Now, here's the thing. Did the security only be provided, or was it only provided, rather, when he prayed for it? You know what's interesting? The strong tower, the shelter that has been, still is. The rock that he was crying for has always been. So what was changing? It wasn't, God, I need to go back into that place of security and comfort. What was he saying? God, remind me and show me that you've always been this and you'll still be this. This is why it's interesting. We pray for peace. God, just give me peace about this. John 14, 27. Peace I give unto you. Peace that passes all understanding, by the way. It's always there, but we just don't always choose to recognize it, right? To live in that peace. The place of security provides protection. What was he asking for protection from? In verse 3. Okay, he says, from the enemy. From the enemy. Now, I made a note on my paper here on the side. Uh, when I see the word enemy, it just made me think of who's our enemy. Okay, so three enemies that we face. Satan the flesh, and the world. Those are our enemies. Now, the world, we don't mean people. We mean the world's way of thinking, the world's way of being, right? Love not the things of the world. Okay, it's not talking about we don't love our neighbors who are in the world. We don't love the things of the world, meaning we don't think like the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're conformed and transformed away from thinking like the world thinks. We're not driven by the things that the world is driven with. We don't wake up in the morning and are, are driven with greed and pride and financial gains. We don't, we're not concerned about those things. We work hard. We provide for our families. But at the end of the day, I don't do that so that I'll have a big house. I do that because God's called me to do that. I live to honor him, not to be honored in the world. And so again, he's saying the enemy. Now again, for us, Satan, the world, and the flesh would be our three enemies. But there is an enemy that most likely David was talking about in this psalm. Now, we don't know for sure, and in my studies, there was a couple uh, commentaries that didn't mention this. One specifically did say a name, but then others said really quickly, we don't know for sure, we're just kind of 
guessing, okay? But uh, does anyone have a guess on who the enemy David might be talking about would be? Okay, that's one guess. Most believe this is later on after David's already established king. Absalom is the one that most, the resource that I found said that Absalom is the one that most people think that he's referring to here. And many of you know the story. Absalom is his son uh, who was trying to take the throne, trying to overthrow David. And so here he's crying out. Now, again, think about this. Now you can maybe connect a little bit more with why was he so overwhelmed? Why was he so enveloped by this? Because his own son is trying to take his throne, trying to take his life. And we're going to read about that in a little bit here. So he's just overwhelmed by this. My own son is rising up against me. So he's saying, God, I need your shelter. I need a strong tower, a place of security from the enemy. I've always thought it was funny, and I believe it's under God's, obviously, his inspiration, but he doesn't say from Absalom. He doesn't name him. He says the enemy. I don't know why. I found that kind of interesting, my own mind or my own notes. But again, here we need to note that whether he's talking about Absalom specifically or talking about just the enemy in general, meaning spiritual enemies, Satan, the flesh, uh, in principle, we can say that this is true of our enemies as well, that when we cry out to him, we'll realize that he gives us security and protection from them. Again, our enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh. And to be honest, when I put down the flesh, I put a little note on my notes. Uh, there is no worse enemy to us in Christ than ourselves. I truly believe that we are our own worst enemy, especially... Now think about this in the sense of the text, especially if I let my emotions envelop me to the point of despair and then choose not to turn to God. So I've become, in that moment, I'm not recognizing the security and the protection, the provision that he's given me and will continue to give me. I'm trying to do it on my own strength. And I just go deeper and deeper into that despair. So I've become the worst enemy that I'm going to face. Because again, we aren't trusting in him. So as a result of him remembering God's goodness, remembering that he is a shelter and a strong tower, we turn to verse 4. So because God has been these things, we go to verse 4. He's, and this is where we talk about the current trust in God. So he remembered God's goodness, and now he moves to a current or present trust in God. He says, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. Now David says he will abide in God's tabernacle. Tabernacle here means dwelling place or habitation. And he says he'll do this forever. Now, is this a literal meaning of that verse? Did David literally mean, I will be in your tabernacle that's on planet earth forever? In a sense. In a sense but not in a literal sense of his physical body is not physically going to be in the physical tabernacle forever in Jerusalem on planet earth. He's saying, your heavenly tabernacle. Because what does the tabernacle represent? This is before the temple, obviously, is, is completed. Yeah, that's where the glory of God is found, right? That's why the temple was such an amazing thing, because now the glory of God is in this temple. It's in this place. We can go there. We can give sacrifices. And so when David's saying this, he says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. He could, he's meaning in a sense, yeah, I want to be in your house, literal house for my whole life. But beyond that, he's saying, I will be in your dwelling place forever. Now, David had a limited understanding of eternal life. 
right? Old Testament, a lot of Old Testament prophets and writers didn't have a very full understanding of what heaven was going to be like. We have the New Testament, praise God. We get a lot of insight that they maybe didn't have as clear to them, okay? Job, I think it's Job that calls the afterlife just this like darkness out there somewhere, right? It's not a very full understanding. So David here has a mindset of what? I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but I know you'll be there. Now think about John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many dwelling places. The King James says mansions. I know people argue about this. Kind of silly. The word just means dwelling place. Okay? I don't know that we'll have a literal mansion in heaven. By the way, I don't really care. If he gives me a little shack, I'm like, great. I'm in your house, in your presence. Okay? I've heard songs about, you know, are you sending up building materials for your mansion in heaven and all this stuff. It's just, okay. What was Jesus' point? That where I am, there you may be also. What was the psalmist? What was David crying out? God, would you just let me be in your dwelling place forever? And I believe, obviously, right now, he's with him in heaven. I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to see David. Okay? And so, again, this is an amazing reality where he's saying, because you're my shelter, because you've been that strong tower, I will continue to abide in you. I will continue to be with you and in your presence. He wants to be in the presence of God. And I can't help again to think not only of John 14, but John 15, when he talks about that we are called to abide in Christ. This abiding, this, this being one with, abiding in the, the vine. And, and he will then provide through us fruit to, to the branches. And so we abide in him. We're, we're in his dwelling place. And so when we are in his presence, we will trust in him and his care for us in spite of what our enemies or our heart is saying to us. When we're abiding in him, trusting in his presence, being in his presence, just spending time in his presence, we will not rise above in our own strength, but by his grace, rise above what our enemies or our emotions are saying to us. Now, the verse 4 ends with Selah. And again, it literally translates to to lift up or exalt, to lift up or exalt. So again, he's talking about trusting in this provision, right? The care of under his wings, this kind of nurturing care, protection, again, like a shelter or a strong tower. Uh, Selah, for my studying, Keith can correct me on this. I'm sure he will. Uh, but I was reading one place, and as a musical term, it means to show pause or interruption. Keith's looking at me like, I don't know. Okay. That's one of the things I read said that. I thought that was interesting. So again, when we see this word say law, it's, it's, it's a pause. Okay, it's putting a little bit of a pause on the psalm. And I think it's doing this. This is the way I read this. We're pausing here. Why would we pause at the end of verse 4? For the purpose of what? To lift up or exalt. What am I lifting up and exalting? Bless you. Not a sneeze. Good guess. What am I lifting up and exalting at the end of verse 4? Why would, I, why would he put it there? Okay, God, his presence, his dwelling place, he's a protection to us, he's a strong tower. We're reflecting back over the previous four verses, and we're saying, God, you are amazing. I'm lifting you up. And this is where, if we're paying attention to the text, the, the psalm, the prayer, turns. It's kind of a hinge point. It's kind of where the psalm turns from, God, I'm, I'm enveloped by this. I'm consumed by this. I need you so desperately to remembering, to a current trust, 
So now we're going to move into, now I'm seeing who you really are. I'm remembering who you really are. And it's going to change my perception of the situation. So it's 6.57. We're going to pause right here because we do have a few more verses. So we're going to pause here. Um, Well, let me think here for a second, actually. Selah. Yes, that was great. I didn't even mean that. You know what? We'll go ahead and finish it up. We'll go a couple minutes over. You guys are probably fine. It's not a big deal. Okay, you're good. Okay, you got nothing to do. It's Sunday night at 7 o'clock. What are you going to be doing? Okay, football's not even on yet. Okay, so so, uh, we're at verse 5. So let's look at verse 5 together. It says here, For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Now, it seems as though it changes a little bit in a, a way we're like, well, what is he talking about now? Why is he getting into all this stuff? But the key I want to start with is he is a God who hears. He is a God who hears. Verse 5, for thou, O God, has heard my vows. You have heard me. I'm not just speaking to the air, speaking to the ceiling. You've heard me. He hears our cries, our prayers, and our vows of commitment. He's saying, I have cried out to you. Now, vows here make us think of what? When you hear the word vow, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind? Promise. I think of marriage. I think of a marriage vow, right? This idea of a commitment. I'm making a commitment to this person. But when I, when I take part in a marriage vow, when Sandra and I got married, and I recited those vows, I wasn't just making a commitment to her, but who else was I making a commitment to? God, because it's his idea, right? By the way, he's the founder of marriage. He created it. Therefore, he can define who can and can't be married, by the way. So when he says, this is what I'm saying, this is, I'm vowing to her, but I'm also vowing to God and saying, this is a commitment, God. I pray that you help me to keep this covenant, not only with her, but also with you, that I would honor you in this way and how I live out this marriage. And so here, vow is referring to a form of offering to God. I love that idea, an offering to God. Because he knows God, God hears him, so he is given all to him. God, I know you hear me, so I'm giving you this offering. I'm committing to you. Now, what is he committing? I take it to mean he's committing himself. I'm giving you myself as an act of sacrifice. I'm making a vow to you. He also says that God has given him an inheritance of, quote, those that fear thy name. Now, we'll come back to this mention of his name. We talked about that last week in Psalm 8. Again, we'll come back in just a moment. But... Who are these that are the, uh, those that have feared thy name? What is this inheritance that he is referring to? So what's the heritage that David is referring to, do you think, that is this group that fear thy name? Okay. Yep. Okay. So there's this heritage and this history of those patriarchs in Genesis all the way through to Joshua and so on and so forth. Okay. Any other ideas on who this heritage, these, this group might be? Okay. 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 Absolutely. So for us in the New Testament, anyone who follows Christ, they're a, they're a group that we see as an example of those that fear his name, right? For David, it's in a sense referring to those that fear the name of God, right? Followers of God. Sandra, what were you going to say? I was just going to say 
Okay, so Israelites could be specifically patriarchs, could be anyone that's followers of God. So let's step back a moment. How did the prayer start? My heart's overwhelmed. Why is my heart overwhelmed? Because I'm consumed by this enemy that, I, that I'm facing right now, Absalom. He's coming against me. He's rising against me. What did David do to change his thinking about the situation? He stopped dwelling on one enemy and started thinking about a nation, or in some cases, even a remnant through Old Testament history that remained faithful to God. And he kind of experienced what I've heard others refer to as the Elijah syndrome. What's the Elijah syndrome? I'm the only one, right? Look at me. God, I'm the only one doing anything. They're all worshipers of Baal. I'm the only one still serving you. And what is God's response? I have many who haven't bowed a knee. Don't, don't forget, I'm doing a work beyond what you can see. There's a remnant that's faithful. So what did David have to remember? Yes, I have this enemy. And he's a serious enemy. And I'm, I'm concerned about this, but I'm giving this to you. And as I do that, I remember, God, you've given me a heritage, an inheritance of followers of God who have loved you and have given their lives for you. And you were faithful to them. And so, God, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I think about when it talks about in Hebrews that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Now, some interpret that passage differently. Some think that, you know, the saints of prior centuries and generations are up in heaven in grandstands watching us and cheering us on. I don't necessarily think that's what that verse is saying. What I think that verse is saying is that we can go to God's word and we can read example after example after example of God's people doing God's work and God faithfully providing to them, for them, with them. And we can go, man, that's a cloud of witnesses that we can glean from, we can learn from, we can be encouraged by. And I think that's kind of what David's doing here. He's kind of letting the past, again, remember, he's remembering the past saints. God, you've been faithful. There's been a heritage of this inheritance of people that feared your name. And I'm not going to stop because you're not going to stop being faithful. So again, this could be the people of God. This also, in some understanding, could be the throne that God has given him. The throne itself was a form of an inheritance, right? But also going to become a heritage, as we'll talk about in a minute. So verses 6 and 7, we see here a kingdom forever. A kingdom forever. He says here, Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations he shall abide before God forever, O prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. Now, when I was doing my notes through here, you notice that there's a changing now. Because he says here, my cry. Attend unto my prayer. Verse 6, he says, thou wilt pro prolong the king's life. So there's a changing here of how he's speaking about this. Now, when I first read that, I thought I literally put a question mark next to king. Like, okay, well, who's, who's the king? Who's he talking about? Again, is this referring to before he was king? Is this Saul? So I, I did a little more looking into this. Most seem to agree that actually he's talking about himself, his kingdom, and the kingdom to come. So again, notice in verses, verse 6, uh, he talks about prolonging the king's life. And then he talks about years and generations. So years, to me, I made a note of specific time five years, 10 years, that's a, that's a specific amount of time, right? I'm going to do this for the next two years. Okay, I can gauge that. Generations in scripture, when used this way, can sometimes refer to an undesignated amount of time. It's just going to continue. It's going to keep going. 
Okay? There's not a specific ending date to this. And so it's a general term for an unknown number of years. So David is saying that you will prolong the king's life for years and generations. So this is going to continue. David, again, most likely is referring to the covenant that God made with him, that his kingdom will go on forever. Not that David will live as king, literal, physical body on the throne forever. No, no, no. He's understanding, God, you made a covenant with me. You said this kingdom will go on forever to what we understand to be who? Jesus Christ, right? The fulfillment of that was fulfilled in the person of Christ as he was in the line of David and ultimately the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So why would David go here? Why would he take time to, to focus on that covenant with God and that idea? I believe he is trusting that God will keep the promise that he made him. He will not lose his life or his throne. So notice again, he speaks specifically, the king's life. You will prolong my life. I think David is saying here, God, you're going you're gonna to take care of me. I'm not going to lose my life to Absalom. But then I, I kind of look at this way. He's almost like saying, but even if I do die, which I will at some point die, we all will, my kingdom, my throne will go on forever because you said it will. Now we understand the fulfillment of that is in Christ. But I see David kind of looking at the big picture now. God, you, you made me a promise. And I don't know what that's all going to look like, but I know for sure this throne will continue for generations. Something I noted here real quick in verse 7, he says, He shall abide before God forever. So again, what does that remind us of? We go back up to verse 4. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. So again, we see that abiding, that relationship, right? That's what it's all about. Abiding is relationship. It's that closeness. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. When I saw mercy and truth in relation to a king, I instantly thought, man, there's two great qualities for leadership. Like, can you think of two better qualities for a president, a king, a leader to have mercy and truth? What's another way to look at mercy? It's just really love in action, right? If somebody's merciful, they're just showing you love, but it's in some form of an action. I pardon you of your crime or I pardon you of this debt. I'm showing you love in action. And so for me, I, made, I circled those and kind of put a little note that those are keys to good leadership. For a leader to have mercy and truth. So how do we apply that quickly to us as a side note? When we're praying for our leaders, which I pray that we are, I don't agree with, I think I can say this, literally anything that our president has done since he's been in office. Like literally zero. But nowhere does that lead me to say, well, then I don't need to pray for him. I still need to pray for him. So what are things that we could pray for our president? Lord, let's pray that you'd give him an understanding of mercy. Not just how to be merciful, but your mercy for him in the cross, that he would come to know Christ and therefore exhibit that mercy to others. And then obviously truth, that our leaders would speak truth. So what do we think of when we think of mercy and truth? We think of what Paul said Speak the truth in love. Again, mercy is just love in action. Last verse, verse 8. So after all of this, the, the result is praise. The result of all of this is to praise. So I will sing praise unto thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. David says he will sing praises to thy name 
not because the enemies have fled from before him, but because he is comforted by the presence of God. He is secure in him and trusting in him so he can praise him. He also commits to, quote, perform the vows that he made to God. It was not just to get me out of this prayer. That's what came to my mind. So many people have prayed, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I will do blah, blah, blah. That's not what David's doing here. David's saying, God, I'm not even asking you to get rid of this. I'm just saying, would you just surround me with your presence? And I want to commit my life to you. And then not just say it now when things are bad, but when things are really good, I want to perform that which I've committed to you. So again, it's not get me out of this. It was, I know you're with me, so I will live for you type prayer. Again, the, God, the name of God is mentioned uh, again, and it goes almost without saying that his name is a key throughout all of Scripture. It's his name that will be glorified. It's his name will be lifted up, even in the midst of understanding that he's there for us. He's there for us, yes, because he loves us, but he's also there for us because it glorifies him to be there for us and to be gracious to us. So why does God hear our cries? Why does he allow us to run to him as a strong tower so that the name of God will be glorified in all the earth? So, in closing, you can jot these a couple of verses I want to give you. We have all felt overwhelmed in this life. I asked before, how many of you have ever prayed that kind of prayer and some hands went up? And I think if we were really being honest, we've all been there to some degree or another in our life, especially as followers of Christ. Our hearts are weighed down with the stress of the world. But the solution is not to mask those hurts or to stress out about those hurts. As David did, we need to take them to the Lord, take them to the one who can do something about it. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You can jot it down there somewhere. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious. That word anxious means to be consumed in the heart for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer or crying out to God and supplication, sharing the genuine needs that we have with thanksgiving, which what is another way to understand thanksgiving? Remembering. God, I'm going to thank you for what you've already done. Let your requests be made known to God, verse 7, as a result of doing that, as a result of being uh, a person of prayer that takes these things to him, as a result, verse 7 says, and the peace of God, which passes, I'm sorry, which surpasses all comprehension, will guide, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I'm anxious. I'm overwhelmed. I'm enveloped. I don't go to someone else. I don't run to, to culture. I don't run to a substance. I don't run to a, another relationship. I run to the one who can do something about it. I cry out to him. I make my request known. And then as a result of just making the request known, notice Paul doesn't say, and then God does what you ask, and then you have peace. He says, just make it known to him. And once you realize you've made it known to him, by the way, he already knew it, but we make it known to him. Now, just knowing he knows and knowing who he is, our hearts are lifted. We have peace that passes all understanding. And that peace not only will strengthen us, the Bible says it will guard your hearts and your minds. So when I feel overwhelmed again, when I feel stressed again, I don't have to fear because my heart and my mind is guarded in Christ. And so I just want to encourage you guys with that tonight. I pray that's a blessing to you. Um, next week, we'll do another psalm. I don't know which one yet. Um, I was going to ask you guys to share out loud, but we'll just, since it's a little after, um, I have a paper up here. If you have a Psalm that you go to time and time again, we're going to pray and close in prayer. And then you're welcome to share that with me. Um, if you want to come up here and let me know, that'd be great. Or just mention it to me tonight. Um, or if you don't have one you have in mind, maybe just on Facebook, just throw it on there. If one does come to your mind. All right, let's pray. And we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father.
We thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for the, the reality that we don't go through anything that you aren't aware of. That you know our struggles and our trials. And Lord, I thank you for this psalm that we were able to read together, Lord, and to break apart and to look into. And I pray, gain wisdom from, to understand that when we feel that stress, that weight, for whatever reason, self-inflicted or from the world or from others or from the enemy, Lord, that we know that we have a strong tower. We have one that we can run to. And so, Lord, help us to put this into action this week, to pray for these things for not only ourselves, but for others. And Lord, I do pray for our leadership. I pray for our local leadership all the way up to the White House. And Lord, we know that there's decisions being made that, would, that are not pleasing to you in the sense of in agreement with your word. But I'm so thankful that you're working in this nation. Not from the top down, but from the hearts of individuals and communities all over this nation. You are changing hearts and drawing people to Christ. And that's how we're going to see change in this, in this world, in this community. But Lord, I pray for our leadership that they would have an understanding of mercy. First, your mercy for them available through Christ and the cross. But also their ability to show mercy to others. And Lord, I pray that you would allow them to speak truth, to know the truth, and to be set free by it. Father, again, we thank you for this week ahead. And we pray that we'd be able to make an impact for Christ in some way, shape, or form. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you guys are dismissed. We'll see you Wednesday night at 7 o'clock.